This week, I'm going to be looking at uh, the topic of sin. So, and then next week, we're going to look at the snake and the savior. So double bill. You've got me for two weeks, I'm afraid. Um, so that's kind of where we're heading. We're going to focus in on the topic and, and an understanding of what sin is and how it fits into the story in Genesis 1 to 3. And then next week, we're going to kind of round off our series, finish off our series, looking at two central figures, uh, the snake and the savior, or, or rather, actually, the two kind of background figures, the snake and the savior. Um, and that's where we're going next week. But... Um, the reason for doing it in this way and in this order is because kind of if you've been with us now the last four weeks, we've picked up the themes of creation, humanity, uh, kind of stewardship, how we look after our world and how we relate to the natural resources of the world. And then also uh, God's presence, how humans relate to God in his presence. They're the four themes that we've picked up as we've seen as we've looked through chapters one and two. These are themes, big themes in scripture and the whole Bible, but find their origin point in this story. And um, as we've looked at them, we've seen some amazing, uh, beautiful pictures, I think. Like, for example, in creation, um, it was this beautiful, ordered world overflowing with uh, potential and creativity and abundance. And yet, if we think about it, we don't have to think about it hard, we see that the world that we live in today is, uh, is filled with all sorts of perils and dangers from disease to disasters. It's uh, pretty painfully apparent to us at the moment that there's much in this world that causes great pain and great suffering. It doesn't quite feel like the picture painted in Genesis 1. And humanity, as we looked at the, the, the origin of, of humanity, we saw beautifully, amazingly, that uh, you know, Adam and Eve created as to be image bearers, to be created fully equal, man and woman, together, representing God. And we learned that because of this, this defining thing, all humans everywhere, from the youngest to the oldest, no matter what, no matter uh, culture, background, social status, ethnicity, religion, whatever, all humans are created with a beautiful divine equality created in his image. That's what we read in Genesis. And yet, the story of humanity, our history as humans, is one of continual power oppressing the weak. And whether that's women, children, the elderly, ethnic minorities, religious minorities, humans find a way to oppress, find a way to trash the image of God. We don't represent him very well would be an understatement to describe humanity. And we certainly don't treat one another as though they are image bearers. And before we start thinking that, well, okay, things were bad, but we're getting better, we're getting better, there's progress. Let's remember that the 20th century, the one just gone, was the most murderous in history. The only thing that changed was we found more creative ways to kill one another. 21st century is shaping up to be much of the same. This doesn't feel like the innocence and equality that we had in the garden. Sorry, guys, it's getting dark. We start off low, maybe we build up. Stewardship then. 
looking after the natural resources of this world. That was the mandate given to humanity, to rule and reign with God's authority, to steward this world, to look after the, the animals, I guess, is the, the picture painted. God kind of, there's this beautiful story, we didn't go deep into it, of Adam naming the animals, and in doing so, kind of having an authority and a stewardship and a care over the created world. God is deputizing humans to rule in his place. It's beautiful. But let's face it, we've not done a good job. Natural resources ripped from the earth at an alarming rate, causing lasting, terrifying damage, climate disasters to freak weather events all over the world. Again, it doesn't feel like paradise on earth. It doesn't feel like the garden. God's presence. What an amazing picture painted in Genesis of humanity just walking in the garden in the cool of the day with God at their side. They could ask him any question they wanted. Hey, what do we do with these weird animals? I forgot what to... Oh, let me tell you. They had that kind of a relationship with the creator God that they could ask any question. That kind of presence and relationship is not what we enjoy today with much of the world turning its back on God and, and uh, going in the opposite direction, even those of us who are uh, seeking to love God, seeking to, to, to know him, seeking to find out more and, and, and longing to submit our lives to God and, and, uh, and, and seeking after his presence fundamentally, recognizing that that was how we were created, so we're on a mission to, to live in his presence, essentially. It's not like the garden, our relationship doesn't feel the same. It's not the same. It's not enough. And so what I'm trying to say here is that the picture that Genesis 1 to 2 paints of the created world doesn't match up with our experience, and it's good to ask the question, why? And the answer is, of course, chapter 3. So that's where we're going to go today. There's something wrong with the world, and why is the question that we want to answer. And, and, I, and I need to say at this point, I'm going like, to like raise up one idea, one answer to the question to an extent, but there's no, um, there's no way in the time I've got um, and what I want to focus in that I can kind of answer all of the questions that are going to come about um, when we look at the world and its brokenness and the pain and the suffering that's caused, I can't do justice to that in this time. I also uh, don't think I'm capable of doing so, and I don't think the Bible expects me to. In fact, um, when we look at the topic of suffering, you know, Job, the book of Job's one of the longest books in the Bible, and it's certainly the longest passage of Scripture to talk about the the, the topic of suffering. Job is a man who suffers greatly, and then the, the rest of the story is this philosophical conversation about why. And I think it's fair to say the, the outcome of that conversation is, you know, why does hap suffering happen the way that it does to who it does, um, in the quantity that it does, it comes away with, ultimately, I don't know. And so I think as Christians, we need to be careful not to very quickly try and answer that type of a question with some sort of bulletproof formula. Because actually in the face of real suffering that people are going through personally and globally, it comes across uh, as either arrogant or ignorant or naive. I think really, um, I wasn't going to say this, I think really um, 
are more compassionate and more realistic. Um, and, and I think a more authentic, actually, to Scripture is to say, in the face of suffering is I don't know, and I'm so sorry, and how can I help? What can I do? How can I pray? How can I provide? That's what we want to do as a church. We're not trying to answer clever questions. Uh, I give clever answers to difficult questions, but we want to stand with our brothers and sisters around the world and here in this room who are struggling and say, we love you, we support you, and we're here for you. So I do think that we start to kind of see what I want to call little, little places for hope. And in this morning, we're going to look at one kind of one part of the story as to why things went wrong. But what I'm not saying is that that answers the whole picture. I'm not saying it answers the whole story. It's just part of the conversation that we can have going forward. So let's read Genesis chapter 3. And we're just going to read the first 13 verses. I'm reading in NIV, and it'll be, there we go, lovely. So, Genesis chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called them to the man and said, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put in here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Okay, there's a lot in this text. There's a lot in this story. We're absolutely uh, not going to do justice to it. Can I encourage us? We, we ask these questions. Come and, and ask me if you've got more questions at the end, something I don't say this morning. Um, I don't want to leave people with loads of questions. Um, but it's one of those stories, I think, that can come across in a number of ways. Uh, for me, I always remember reading it and thinking it comes across as harsh. Like, why is there this tree that they can't eat? from. It seems a bit arbitrary. It's like I remember uh, in England, you go to these uh, beautiful cities with castles and manor towns and stuff. And I remember going to Oxford, big university city. And if you ever go into Oxford University, um, they have these buildings and then the square in the middle and this beautiful green grass lawn. And of course, you're like, want to go, but you can't because there's a big sign that says, do not walk on the grass. Do not step on the grass. And it feels like, is this that moment? Like, do not step on the grass. Why? Grass is clearly for walking on. It's what it's for. It looks so lovely. 
Um, but actually, this story, remember, written to an ancient culture with ancient language, it's actually a story that's, that's trying to reveal a heart of humanity. It's actually not a small thing, but rather a, a huge rebellion against God, against um, kind of the relationship that humans had with God. And of course, um, it's part of the Bible's answer to what went wrong. We follow the story. If you actually, uh, in Hebrew, there's this um, kind of, way that the story is crafted from the end from chapter two into chapter three they're kind of a unit and it centers around it kind of steps up and mirrors itself right on the moment when they eat of the of the fruit and what what the authors are trying to tell us is that this moment is it's a pivotal moment in understanding kind of all of the rest of the relationship that humans have with God how humans have with one another and what human relationship with the created world is why it's the way it is or part of the reason of understanding it hinges on this story so it can't be just this simple kind of naive fairy tale about not not biting of an apple that's not what it is and it's not an origin story for like how snakes got no legs and um, like a just so story which again is kind of a modern interpretation that this is you know to explain how snakes came about and next week as we look at the snake I hope We'll unpack that a little bit. Um, no, this is, this is truly about the heart of all humanity. And it speaks to our situation and our relationships today. And we just have to unpack it a little bit. And I think that the reality is that this story is trying to tell us, is trying to communicate, is that, because, you know, when we think about, if we think about the Garden of Eden, we think, well, pff, I mean, you just don't eat from the tree, do you? It's pretty simple. God says, don't eat from the tree, don't eat from the tree. What idiots Adam and Eve were, I wouldn't do that. No. The reality is, not only would we have gladly all eaten the tree, eaten that fruit from the tree, but the fact is we do every day, all the time, in millions of little ways. So, why do I say that? The tree, named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, represents something very important, namely knowledge. Knowledge is a good thing. And knowledge or wisdom about what is right and wrong is super important. God really cares that we have that. He cares a lot. Because he wrote, you know, he, that's like, he really wants for us to have this knowledge. The question is, how do we get it? How do we come about this knowledge, discerning right from wrong, understanding the consequences of my actions, and figuring those things out? And the question that's given to Adam and Eve with the placement of the tree is, are you, and, and, and exactly the kind of question that the snake, that the serpent exploits, he knows the, the tension here and goes in his questioning, which we'll focus a little bit more on next week. The way he asks his questions exploits this tension, this test, as it were, that God is placing on Adam and Eve and on all of humanity. How are we going to get our understanding, our wisdom, our knowledge of good and evil, 
Are we going to choose to trust God, listen to him, hear his word, be taught, be discipled? Remember, they were in the garden. They could ask him any question. They walked in his presence. They had a relationship with him. They were father and child. You know, it was parents and children relationship. Or are they going to choose to take this knowledge for themselves? Are they going to define good and evil on their own terms? That's exactly what the snake says, isn't it? That's exactly how he phrases it. And he boldly contradicts what God said. Surely you will not die. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened. Yes, their eyes are opened. That's the point. But they, they're done so without the security of the relationship of a loving father to care for and to lead them and to guide them. In other words, instead of discipleship, they choose to go their own way, to do it their own way to decide for themselves what's good in their own eyes. And this is then the way that the, the authors of the Bible pick up this story many, many, many times. This theme as it picks up again through Scripture. You see, take and eat. They saw, someone saw something and it was good and so they took it. We see that um, it's in the Cain and Abel story, the next story. It's in... Um, the story of Noah as he kind of grows his own vines and he saw that it was, uh, they were beautiful and pleasing to eat and so he makes this wine and gets super drunk and then disaster happens. These stories happen as a repeated pattern. Seeing something is desirable, kind of knowing that it's wrong, seeing something is desirable and choosing to take and eat, defining good and evil, defining right and wrong on our own terms. That's what the snake says. God's holding you back. He's keeping you from something greater. You can be just like him. And that irony is that as image bearers, they already were. In a way that the snake could never understand, being a snake. Adam and Eve were already created in God's image. Let us make mankind in our image. Just like us, God said. That's what they already were. Crazy. At the heart of this story is a desire to define good and evil on our own terms. When we have desires that run opposite to what God is lovingly and patiently teaching us about, what do we do? Do we trust that God will meet our needs? Do we trust that he's got our best interests in, in his mind? Or is it the fear of missing out? Is it the fear of, uh, of not getting the thing that we want? Are we going to trust in God or are we going to decide for ourselves? This is at the heart of the story, and it's what the Bible calls sin. And that word's obviously not used in this text. Uh, the word is chetar in Hebrew. It's used in the next chapter, chapter four, to describe Cain killing, well, actually, it's to describe, God says to Cain, it's fascinating, he says, Cain, watch yourself now, because sin is crouching like a tiger, like a, like a roaring beast, like a lion, to, um, oh yeah, here we go. It's, it's like a lion behind, uh, ready to devour you. And sin 
uh, then is, is not used in this chapter, but Paul the Apostle in Romans chapter 5 says this, in, in looking back at this story of the fall, he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death has spread to all mankind because all have sinned. What Paul is saying is that this story is the origin of this word and understanding it then is really important. Okay, so as you can see, the word chatar means to miss the mark. It just means to miss the mark. And so in, we'll talk about what the mark is in just a moment. Um, but what it isn't then, sin isn't a list of right and wrongs. It isn't a list of things and mistakes that we've made. We have to be careful that we don't have uh, like a calmer mindset about sin. Oh, I made this mistake, I made that mistake, so I'll do this instead. I was speaking to some friends of mine in school who, um, they're not Christians, but they come from a culture and a, and a climate where they're, you know, they, they do lots of uh, kind of religious practices. So they were fasting, and then we were having a birthday celebration. They ate some cake, and they're like, oh, no, I ate some cake. Well, I'll, I just need to do this, this, and this, and it's okay again. And... Um, which is, that, that's, a, that's a way that we think about sin. That's a way that we think about doing wrong things. I'll make up for it. And that's true when you wrong somebody. Yes, you should make up for it to repair that relationship. That's not quite what sin is. It's not how the Bible understands it. Yeah, you hurt someone, you should try and repair the damage. But that's not sin. Again, we need to be careful that we don't think of sin in hierarchical terms. Some sins are worse than others. So if someone comes in and they've done that, oof, out. We start to think, again, we, we lose sight of what we read in Genesis 2. We're created equal image bearers of God. That's our baseline, all humanity. When we start to think of some sins as worse than others, we start to make a, a us and them mentality. Again, that's not right. Yes, some ways that we act in our life are more damaging than other ways. Obviously, that's true. And that's important to recognize. It's, it's serious. Some sins or some ways of behaving are obviously going to impact the world in a way and impact other people in a way very different to others. I don't want to give trite examples. I don't want to just... But you know, I, I hope you understand what I'm saying is that Yes, the effects of sin can, can, be, can be sort of like seen on a scale, but that's not what sin is. Uh, rather, sin is the, the, the cause, the root, it's at the heart. It's what I've already said, it's uh, the heart that wants to define right and wrong on our own terms. And then from there, of course, springs out decisions. I want to do this, and I don't really care how it affects people. I want to live this kind of way, and I don't mind the damage it does to me, because ultimately, I'm the one who gets to decide. It's, I mean, what I'm saying now is probably about the most offensive thing I could say into our culture and the world that we live in. Because it's like how I grew up was watching Disney films. You know, I'm the master of my own soul, aren't I? Right? Surely I get to, of course I get to make all the decisions about how I live my life. How dare you tell me what to do? The reality is, we do get a choice, of course we do. But the choice is, are we going to have a relationship with a God who loves us and ask him to help us? 
ask and listen. And God doesn't expect that to be easy. Absolutely not. Or are we just choosing to go our own way? That's the heart of sin. That's what sin is. I've got four illustrations, and we don't have time for really any of them, so I'll give you one of them. But if there's a picture up there uh, of four pictures, uh, yeah, yeah, you could put the next. Here we go, great. So four illustrations, uh, very briefly. I teach my kids how to measure. They always measure from the end of the ruler to wherever they're measuring. Until, obviously, I try and teach them. Uh, I teach five and six-year-olds, so fair enough, they're young. But I try and teach them, no, you've got to measure from zero. If you don't measure from zero, your measurements are wrong. But if you use the ruler wrong, you, you get it wrong. That's what the issue is. So if we're thinking of sins as the incorrect measurements, we're, we're not solving the problem. It's that we're using the ruler wrong. Uh, paint. Harry's painting all the time, but he never changes the water because he's three. And he dips the paint and then onto the next bit of paint. And onto so by the end of like three minutes of him painting, uh, there's nothing on the paper but all the paint palettes, all the little paints, they're all brown. And then when he paints, it's just a muddy mess. If you're painting, you need to use the paints carefully and you need to have fresh water. Otherwise, you're going to get a muddy mess. Um, instruments, you know, I could play the guitar and it sounds beautiful if I play all of the right notes, but if the guitar's out of tune, it doesn't matter if I play the right notes, they're gonna sound wrong. The issue of sin is that we're out of tune. The, the water's muddy, we're using the ruler wrong, or it's like a boat and the rudder, the thing that kind of steers it, if that's bent out of shape, it doesn't matter if you're following the maps or you've got your GPS or you can use the stars to navigate, you're gonna go off course. And that's the issue. Missing the mark isn't missing, you know, you know, if you're fasting and then you eat chocolate, oh dear, I missed the mark. That's not it. There's only one target, and the target is being truly human image bearers. It's being created in God's image to rule and reign with his authority in his presence. It's back to the garden. That's the mark. That's what we're aiming for. which I hope dawns on us, is an impossible task. Another way of describing uh, the condition of the heart, what the Bible is calling sin, is the decision to choose anything over God, to love something more than God. Any time we live that way, we are actively rejecting the creator for things he's created. That's at the heart. I could have the creator of the universe and therefore access to all of what he's created or I'd just have these little bits of creation. C.S. Lewis, Lewis says it like this, that we are, um, oh, I haven't got the quote, so I'm just, this is me paraphrasing and I'll probably get it wrong. Um, but he says that we're like children at the beach, happy to just make mud pies you know, with the sand and with water, it's happy making mud pies when what's on offer is a beautiful banquet in the presence of God. That's what's on offer. With knowing him or just making do with the created things. That's, that's, that's the choice. Um, I really want to like nail this down and get worse and worse and worse because at this point I'm feeling a little hopeless. Uh, this is what John Piper says about sin. John Piper's a, a Christian pastor in the US um, and he, he writes this, uh, yeah, sin, 
Hope you like my drawing, guys. Uh, sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin. Frank Sinatra said it this way, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much, much more, I did it, I did it my way. So, sin is missing the mark, not living up to the image as image bearers. And in doing so, and in being that way, and, and the, the outcome of this, of course, is that our relationships are broken. Our relationship with God, our connection to him and his presence, our relationship with one another, relating to one another in a way that edifies, builds up, helps. There's damage there. And our relationship with the world, of course, and with the created world, and how we relate to resources, and how we relate to food and money. It's super easy, perhaps, at this point, to feel, I don't know, guilt, shame, inadequacy, hopelessness. I just want to go back to how God responds to Adam and Eve. Those questions that he asks, he comes back to the garden in the cool of the day, and he asks, where are you? I, again, always read that as a little bit either patronizing or, like, crazy, because surely God knows where they are, and, like, surely he knows what's happened and what's gone on. It's God, after all. And you're right, he does. It isn't, it isn't a test in that sense. He's genuinely offering up an opportunity for Adam and Eve to just be honest and be truthful about what's going on in the exact same way that with the students that I teach and my children, I ask, first of all, I know what's happened. I know why he's crying over there. I could see the red handprint on his face and I could see the, you know, I know what's gone on, but I say, what, what happened? Can you tell me what happened? An opportunity to, to be honest and to acknowledge and to be genuinely contrite and sorry and to, to try and do something. I think that's what's going on here in the way that God questions. But the next thing that God does, see Adam and Eve, they've, they've ran away realizing their nakedness. And again, this is an, uh, like metaphorical as we're kind of, they're exposed. They realize in that moment that they've exposed themselves, that their kind of their shame, their guilt, the horror at what they've done, they feel like they need to hide. They feel spiritually and emotionally uh, naked is represented by the realization that they, in fact, are naked. And what God does is, we read in verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. He clothes them. He covers up their shame. And it reminds me of a story 
uh, that Jesus told, a parable that he told. You know the parable of the, uh, I call it the parable of the two sons, but it's uh, the prodigal son is what it's often called. You might remember uh, there's a younger son and he's looking out in the world and thinking, oh, all the good stuff's out there. And he's looking at this, his dad who's been saving back money you know, I don't know, maybe he's got a little treasure chest and every year he just puts a little bit. He's saving an inheritance for his sons. And the younger son sees that inheritance as an opportunity. And his dad's the thing in the way. So he says one day, Dad, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I want it early. I want to enjoy it. I know how to spend it. I'm paraphrasing in a way that I think highlights the similarities between the story of the parable of the prodigal son and this Adam and Eve story. Let me, dad, I want to define what's right and wrong to do with that money. It's mine after all, right? This knowledge is mine after all, right? And we know what he does. He goes with the money. He spends it, squanders it. His friends leave him and he ends up eating the food with the pigs. And he thinks to himself in a moment of Sorrow, contrition, repentance. I'd be better off a servant in my father's house than where I am now. So, covered in muck, absolutely humiliated, he goes back. And we know the story. His father drops everything, runs down the lane, lifts up his skirt, ties it around. It's a real picture of not caring at all what the neighbors think as he sprints down to welcome his son who let's remember in saying I want my inheritance basically says I wish you were dead you're the thing standing in the way of me and pleasure you're standing in the way of me and what I want when he runs to him and he clothes him covers up his shame throws him a feast welcomes him in, forgives him. That's the story that Jesus wants us to think of when we think of God. When we think about how we are to relate with the Father, it's that way. Jesus says that we need a new, I wrote a new rudder. (laughs) We need a new rudder. We need a new heart. That's the problem. The problem is the problem of the heart. And that's what Jesus says. You need a new heart, a clean heart. As Christians, we believe that in Christ we have a new identity, that he is in fact one for us, a new identity, a new heart. Uh, it, Paul talks about this in, in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. To remember, this is what the whole point was. How do we get back to Genesis 1? How do we get back to the garden? Paul says, in Christ, we are a new creation. And then he goes on to say this, uh, all of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, fixing that relationship and gave us, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only are we a new creation, but we've had our relationship with God is, is, is healed and now we like stewards of God's resources, are sent on a mission to start to reconcile the relationships with others, to start to reconcile those relationships that were broken. And uh, my favorite verse in the whole of the Bible, Philippians 2, uh, chapter 12, uh, 
chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. I'm often finding myself struggling like with the willpower. Like I know what to do, but it's like I don't want to do it, like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. I know what I should be doing, but I'm struggling. Paul, but Paul says here that, it's, it's a battle, it's a struggle, it's we're working it out in fear and trembling, we're on our knees, we're, we're prayerful, but ultimately, it's God who works in us. You don't need to pull your socks up and get to it. God is gonna work in us to work and to will, to do, to have the desire to do this work. But it's ultimately the best bit, the best news is that ultimately, it's not on us. You see, if the image if, the, if, if missing the mark was missing the image and the mark was being image bearers that, that, that rule and reign in God's sovereignty, rule and reign with God's authority, ultimately it's because Jesus is that image bearer on our behalf. So uh, if I can invite the band up, sorry. We're going to take communion in just a minute. And um, communion is, is this amazing opportunity because as we come to the table, we realize uh, that... Jesus, as the ultimate image bearer, has truly lived a life of obedience. Where Adam and Eve said, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to define good and evil my own way. I'm going to do it how I want. God, not your will but mine. Jesus said, not my will but yours. Jesus lived in full obedience to God the Father. So as we come to the table, what we're doing is we're putting our trust not in ourselves, not in anything that we do, not even in our attempts to try and sort it out now, not even in our attempts to try and be these reconciliation people, but rather each and every time we come to the table and recognize that it's God, you can start playing, uh, that it's God who, uh, it's Jesus, sorry, who has already achieved it. He's the one who's who's already been our image bearer for us on our behalf. You see, Adam and Eve saw what looked good and took and ate. But now Jesus offers us something else to take the taste away, to cleanse us of the curse, free us from the futility, and save us from sin. Jesus tells us, this is my body and my blood. Take and eat. On the cross, Jesus bore the fruit of life, See, there were two trees in the garden. One was the knowledge of good and evil, and the other was the tree of life that was off limits. But again, a huge theme through the Bible is this tree, this tree of life. And the theme of trees as well, of places where tests happen, is where we relate to God. And it finds its fulfillment in a very surprising place at the cross as Jesus is risen up on a tree to die in our place, his suffering becomes our salvation and his body and his blood that he says to take and eat in communion becomes this fruit of life that was off limits. That's what communion is. It's life given freely for us because of what he has done. So if we uh, stand I'd like to pray for us, and then we're going to go straight to communion, and we can, perhaps this is a, one of those Sundays where we might want to kind of take it on 
our own and pray or we can meet together and pray with one another however you feel um, but what we do uh, a good first if you're new is that we have communion off to the side we come we bring it wherever you want and you take it we don't wait for anything um, but we, we we take communion kind of uh, as and when uh, we feel after we've prayed or straight away it's, it's up to you and then uh, the band are going to come and lead us in a, in a new song that's all about how our sin is nailed to the cross that human heart that we had has been put to death if we're in Christ we are a new creation so let me pray for us Lord God I thank you for who we are in Christ Lord that we have a new heart because you have lived an obedient life you're obedient to the point of death. Lord, you fully obeyed God our Father where we couldn't, where we can't. Lord, and I thank you that right now in you we are clothed with robes of righteousness earned by you. Lord, and you've washed us down. Lord, and I thank you that you've put in us a spirit the Spirit of God to rest in us so that we can start now to live lives more and more each day as you sanctify us, as we're discipled by you, we can start to, to put right the mess in this world. We can start to, to bring reconciliation. Lord, it's our mission, it's our calling, it's our great privilege. But Lord, it's with your inspiration, your leading, your power, and it's for your glory. Lord, I pray, would you come and, and meet with us? Forgive us, Lord, of where we've hurt ourselves, hurt one another, and where we've hurt you. Lord, and, uh, and help us this day, Lord, to, to be forgiven, to forgive ourselves, Lord, to let it go and to realize, Lord, that you love us and you cover our guilt, you cover our shame. The precious blood of Jesus Christ.